Coming from a regional New South Wales town with a population of just a few thousand, Dr Karen McNamara is now making a truly global impact. Karen's research is at the crossroads of some truly wicked problems. How livelihoods can be enhanced to respond to the triple crisis of poverty, disaster risk and climate change. A development geographer, Karen works with governments and intergovernmental and non-governmental organisations throughout the Asia-Pacific to build resilient and adaptable communities. But at the heart of this big picture are individuals, real people relying on experts like Karen to build a sustainable future. Karen is passionate about working collaboratively with local communities to give voice and agency to all participants in the research process. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short, and you're listening to Women in Science, a podcast series from the University of Queensland. Karen, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here and to talk a little bit about your story and your career. I was wondering if we could start with your early childhood and if you could tell me how sort of growing up in rural New South Wales really influenced your career in science. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's really lovely. And what a beautiful way to start because I come from this very small town in rural New South Wales called Corindai, which is Camilleroy country. And it had such a foundational impact on who I am today. It was a very small, close-knit community. I came from a really large family. And from a really early age, I became really intimately aware of the interactions or the interconnectedness between humans and nature. So when I was early, in my early teens, I'd spend the weekend up at my nan's farm hand feeding large stocks of cattle. <laughs> so putting out hay, driving the ute and dropping off hay to them and then big tubs of molasses. But also on those weekends, and that was every weekend with my dad and uncles and some other cousins, there we would find cattle that had died. So this was during really significant and persistent, pervasive drought conditions. And so that was devastating. So I think that really mapped onto me those really intimate relations that and interconnections between humans and nature and how humans can be really severely affected by ecological changes and our place in nature. And so I even remember I was really environmental as growing up, really ignited by those kind of early experiences. And so I was reminiscing with some sisters and when I was, you know, 13, 14, I never wanted Christmas or birthday presents, but I wanted donations made to the Wilderness Society to adopt a tree. Amazing. I would write letters to the editor for the Corindai Advocate every week. And were you published in the Corindai? No, Krindai? they never published, How but my mum would still drive me there with my letter, handwritten letter in the envelope and, and that gets handed over to the editors at the Corindai Advocate and everyone would smile at me and, you know, <laughs> humour me, but it was you know, really topical issues, mm. like anything from animal testing to the ozone layer. So, <laughs> And did you follow that, that passion through your sort of high school studies and university studies? Yeah. So in high school, we actually had to hop on a bus every day for an hour and a half each way up to Tamworth to go to high school. I went to primary school in Corindai, this little town, but I was really active in, in high school. So I, with my geography teacher, and it's no coincidence that I'm now a geographer, but with my geography teacher, we set up the first recycling at the high school. And during school assemblies, I would hop up and talk about different endangered species and 
you know, when I think of that now, I think, gee, that was quite brave. But yeah. you are quite brave in those teenage years and then that kind you know, of dulls yeah. slightly. Yeah. And all I wanted to study was environmental science and so that's what I did. So worked hard in school, was nervous. You know, mum and dad, dad was a labourer and so we didn't have a lot growing up mm. and uh, very working class family and there was four children and... I remember working really hard at the dining room table one night and, and looking at environmental science and the TER that you needed to get into it at UNSW. And he was off going off to bed and he came in and he goes, you're right, mate, I'm heading off to bed. And he goes, why, you look sad. And I was like, well, it's just, I've just noticed that it's four years and I know you and mum said you could help support me. And, um, and it's also this TER of 85. And he goes, mate, you get the 85, we'll look after you for the four years. Don't sweat it. Good night. <laughs> <laughs> parenting done. Yeah, parenting done. Tick. Good on your dad. So, and that's when I went on to do, yeah, environmental science at UNSW. And so was it then a sort of anomaly in your family to go on and do a PhD or? Yeah, it was. So I'm the first um, wow. and only in my family. Wow. But I have three older sisters and they were really trailblazers. So it was very even strange for them, the oldest one, Angela, to ask mum and dad, can I go to university? And she's 12 years older than me. But she really kind of carved that path and we all kind of followed. But when I came to the family to say, look, my honours supervisor's really wanting me to pursue my PhD, I I got a lot of pushback. You know, what's that going to do? What kind of job are you going to get? And always very realist in my Mm. family. I think... The work ethic is incredibly strong and they just want to know what tangibly you're going to get from that education. Because for them, education is really important, but it's also risky Mm. because what does it actually lead to? Mm. Mm. And I think that's something that a lot of people experience, especially if they're the first in their family to get a PhD, the sort of questions about the practical applications of what we do. But you clearly showed that because after your PhD, I understand you've worked in numerous roles. So research consultant, research manager at JCU, New South Wales government. Can you talk a little bit about how you found transitioning between what I see as as quite different jobs Mm, um, and, and whether you needed to upskill every time? At the root of that, I actually never wanted to be an academic. And so I think I've tried to get myself out of academia a number of times and then almost it kind of finds me and I get pulled back into it. And so during the whole PhD, while I loved it and my supervisor kept saying, you need to be publishing, I just never published because I never wanted to stay on at a Mm. university. So I wanted to go and do really practical on the ground work. And so I went and worked for the government. I actually returned home. So I went back to Corindai because I felt so, and for my sisters too, and we've all left Corindai, but such a strong sense of place and belonging to, you know, as soon as we arrive there, shoes are off, feet on the ground, the senses are ignited, you know, smell, (laughs) sight, hearing, everything is different there. And we feel really connected to that place. But I wanted to really go back because that's what really started that passion Mm -hmm. and interest in environmental issues social issues facing rural communities. So I spent 12 months with the government back there working with farmers, which was really just beautiful. But kind of these academic jobs were popping up and people were pushing me to apply for them and Mm. one happened to be in Cairns. And so it was actually a personal reason because one of my sisters lived in Cairns and so that's why I moved up there. I think in all those roles, though, there's some key themes around good communication, being organised, being open and transparent. And so those kinds of interpersonal skills have been useful throughout all those different roles. 
Your research focuses on the sort of triple crisis of poverty, disaster risk and climate change. Can you talk to me a little bit, maybe in a bit more layman's terms, about what that means? So I'm a human geographer and I switched out of that kind of environmental science, which I studied for my undergrad, switched over to human geography for my honours and then kept going with the PhD because I was so interested in humans and how humans interact, which is really a throwback to those early experiences I had as a teenage girl and really understanding those interactions between humans and nature, particularly how environmental change can impact on people's livelihoods and their ability to sustain those livelihoods. So in the communities I work with, it's about how do we look at livelihoods in the broader sense and try and identify ways to enhance their capacity through those livelihoods, whether it's human capital or natural capital or social capital, enhance their assets to respond to climate change impacts whether they're kind of more gradual like drought or really rapid onset like cyclones or increase in severity of cyclones and disasters, but also to see if there's ways where we can start moving people out of poverty as well. So how can we enhance that stock of assets that people have and they rely on to sustain their livelihoods? How can we enhance those to, to make lives easier? Despite not traditionally setting out to be an academic, you, you have been very successful in an academic role. What makes you successful in academia that, that maybe, you know, you didn't initially think would? I think because early on when I was doing the PhD, I really viewed academics in one one normative way. And so I just didn't think it was the right fit for me because I wanted to be really boots on the ground, mm. doing really applied, implementing projects, seeing tangible change happen. Like I wanted to yeah. be contributing towards change. And I just thought that there was a disjoint between what I saw as kind of normative academic mm. academics and this lofty goal that I had over here. And so it's taken me quite a while to realise and really step into a different, I guess, academic role mm. where I can actually do that. I can actually use the institution and the university as a springboard to have, you know, really phenomenal and productive partnerships with local grassroots organisations to implement projects. And the University of the South Pacific, where I worked prior to coming to UQ, really helped me do that because they do do lots of delivery mm. and implementation. And so it's made me realise that academics can have really great impacts. Mm, mm around research, around applied research and, and have really genuine, lasting, sustainable, effective partnerships and work with organisations for the delivery of initiatives. Let me follow up on that because one of the great things about your career is you've been very successful in the Linkage Grant Program, which for those people who don't know is about pairing academics with industry and really doing, as you say, making that lasting practical impact. Could you offer some advice to people who are looking to go beyond traditional theoretical academic learning and wanting to engage with industry partners to make a change? 
Yeah, the linkage projects are great. And so the first one that I did was with eight partner organisations. We knew that lots of community-based adaptation projects had been rolled. A lot of funding had gone into the Pacific Islands at the, you know, they're at the front lines of climate change impacts. So lots of funding had gone in for adaptation. But we didn't know a lot about, well, one, two, five years after those projects, how well are they faring? How are communities finding those projects? Are they still working? Have they reduced people's vulnerability? So we partnered with eight different organisations, from regional organisations to really local grassroots organisations that had been involved in implementing adaptation projects. So they had a lot of buy-in and often for them it's they implement projects and they don't go and evaluate longer term. Mm. So they were really keen, even though it's a bit of a vulnerable exercise for them too because they could find things that they would not want to hear or find. Um, So, you know, kudos to them for engaging in that process. A key message that I would want to say around the linkages, but also projects more generally, and COVID and border closures has really elucidated this point Mm. here, is that you have to be really genuine about the partnerships that you're actually wanting to build and you have to nurture them and you have to also be driven by the same purpose. Mm. And so I think that's why they have been successful. Look, there's been lessons in those partnerships too. Some not are always positive and we can grow and work through those. But at the guts of it, it is about a genuine relationship. It's not about, you know, ticking off, I got an ARC grant. Mm. It's how do we work together on a problem or an issue that you also want to know about? Are our purposes the same? Because I think that's really, really critical because then it does feel like a partnership. So lots of researchers have asked me, or oh, how are all your projects going with COVID? Mm. Surely they've all flopped or they've slowed down. And my response has actually been completely the opposite. Mm. They've all thrived with COVID, even though I'm not out travelling, which is also has some positives too, because we're trying to also reduce our own carbon footprint. And that's another conundrum that we face as researchers when our field sites are a distance away. But The only reason they've thrived is because of those genuine partnerships to begin with. Like we've come into these projects Mm. together, working on the same kind of purpose and wanting, you know, co-designing the project and the types of outcomes that we want to deliver. So it's been great. So local partners on my future fellowship, we've collected all this, they've collected, I should say, all this fantastic data from Vanuatu and the Cook Islands on non-economic loss and grief and healing. The Cook Islands data was just presented recently at COP26 in in Glasgow. So really exciting stuff. But none of that would have happened. And yes, those projects would have flopped Mm. during COVID if I hadn't invested in creating those genuine partnerships. That's such an important message. And it's something that I found in my career too, that the most successful collaborations have been those where genuinely we're just trying to answer a scientific question question together. And that's the motivation to get to the answer of the question. So I think that's a fantastic example of how you can hold that true and be very successful with both industry and academia. I'd like to draw us over to our quick fire questions, if you don't mind, by asking you which woman or or women have been the biggest influence in your life. It's such a beautiful question and it's hard not to get emotional in responding. So I was really fortunate to have lots of women around me growing up. So my mum and my two nanas and, and they've all passed on and they're very different women but 
overwhelmingly they were strong and courageous and they dealt with adversity mm. and were kind and nourishing for everyone around them. And then I have these three older sisters and as I mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, the oldest one was a trailblazer. It wasn't common, particularly for women, to go to university from, you know, mm. the little country town I'm from and from our family. And so she was a real trailblazer. And we all kind of just followed suit, mm. knowing that she's done it and it's opened up our worldviews and we can also go off to university and create our pathways in the ways we want to. And they continue, these three older sisters continue to be these powerhouses in education and government and I really look up to them. That's so That's amazing to have that example from, from such a young age. So I know from my own personal experience, I, I look at my mother and her scientific career and the, and the number of obstacles that she had to face that I, I don't have to experience on a daily basis. Tell us, I guess, your opinion on whether you think women today face fewer gender-related obstacles in their career or if it's just, if it's just different. And it's a, it's a big question. There's no easy answer to this. My mum was housewife and would step ins every morning and put a face on and, like, literally put a face on. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have lots of little examples of being a female academic, you know, around having babies and maternity leave and that feeling that women get mentored and men get sponsored and Mm. and I've seen that kind of happen. Or I really actually – I found this quite interesting, this question – And the only real point I wanted to make with it is as I was trying to navigate and I kept going, I don't want to be in academia, I don't want to be in academia. And I think the problem was is that I actually couldn't find any senior women Mm. in my area that I could go, that's it. Yeah. So much of the issues we have with gender representation, especially in the sciences, is, you know, you can't be what you don't see. If you don't have a senior academic woman that you can look up to and say, she did it, you know, she managed a family, she was very successful, she's fulfilled all her career goals. I think that's very difficult. I mean, I think anything is possible. And, you know, my beautiful dear mum, we're so different, but we got along so well. And sometimes she would just say, I don't know how I had you girls, because it was just so different to her life and our worlds. I think why I was so hesitant at the start of wanting to stay in academia is one, I couldn't see pathways where it was really going to contribute to change on the ground. Also, actually, one thing I haven't mentioned about that is you forget the role and the huge impact you have when you teach. Mm. And so that's a key point I'd like to also make Mm. is please go out there and teach. I'm in a research-focused position at the moment, but I always teach because that is where some true impact is, is going on and there's a legacy with that. And that's where it's so rewarding as well. Yes, yes, absolutely. But I think... In those early days, I couldn't seem to pinpoint or find senior academic women that were in my field. Mm. Plenty of blokes, Mm. plenty of blokes. And there was a few women over time that I did find that were somewhat related to my field. And I'd look at what they would do and it just didn't quite sit Mm. well. That still wasn't what I was really trying to hit at with this on-ground impact. They were doing great stuff, don't Mm. get me wrong. 
So I would kind of got a bit confused or conflicted at times because I'm like, oh, is that what you have to do? If you want to be a senior academic woman, you have to follow that pathway because mm. they've made, you know, yeah, very that successful. is the pathway yes. to follow. So it took me a while to find some other women in different fields mm. who are fantastic mentors now and go, you can be that more pracademic. Mm. I like that expression, pracademic. I think that's something that everyone should endeavour to sort of think about, I guess, in their career. So the final thing I would like to ask you is the one piece of advice you would like to pass on to the next generation of scientists. Yeah, thanks. It's such a lovely way to end and, and what a privilege to try and offer up something. I really do think it's so important that you surround yourself by good people. In the workplace, work with good, kind, caring people. And that's not always easy. And I've had lots of experiences where that hasn't been possible. Mm. But just try and remember that. Try and work with good, kind, caring people that may or may not have the same kind of purpose. There's pros and cons with that as well. But then also outside of the workplace surround yourself make sure you've surrounded yourself with people that truly love you and when they truly love you they can give you that critical feedback Mm. that you need having that outsider critical view on you and even though sometimes it still kind of hits hard when you get that critical feedback but you know that they deeply love you and they've got your best interests at heart and so you need quite a few of those people in your life. And so make sure you've got those people around you and call on them when you need to. That's a beautiful message. Surround yourself in in kindness in, in everything that you do. Thank you so much for your time and I really appreciated chatting with you. Oh, it's been great. Thank you. You've been listening to Women in Science, a podcast series from the University of Queensland. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was produced by Dr. Malu Stecker and Dr. Marina Fortes. Technical production is by Daniel Seed. I'm Dr. Kirsty Short. Thanks for listening.